Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics, the podcast with me, Steve Richards. Thank you very much for tuning in. And thank you all those of you who watched the uh, virtual Rock and Roll Politics live show last Monday evening on the King's Place uh, YouTube website. Many of you did and thousands have watched subsequently. The link is, is on the website still to that show. So if you didn't watch it and would like to do so, please do. The odd thing about this crisis is that actually things are much slower moving than you think. So it hasn't really dated the show from last week because the themes of this virus remain constant. Deaths, tests, equipment, exit strategy. And when you think about it, most of the questions at those daily press conferences are the same each day virtually and the same answers. And I've just been watching the political programs which come out most days in various forms. And the questions have been the same for weeks as as well as the answers. So uh, nothing really dates. Things appear to be fast moving all the time because the choreography is such that there are daily press conferences, there are specials each day on the television and all the rest of it. But those have been the constant themes, tests, equipment, deaths, exit strategy, blah, 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 not underplaying any of them. They are of supreme importance, but we are navigating our way through this very, very slowly indeed. One thing that has happened since that uh, live show, oh, and by the way, there'll be another one this month, so do uh, look out for that on King's Place website, Twitter, and I'll alert you here as well. Uh, well, yeah, back to one of the things that has happened this week. The uh, meeting, in inverted commas, of Matt Hancock's uh, 100,000 tests target, which was a new twist at the press conference when he announced it the other day. And he kind of, he's a very interesting mix, Hancock. He's, he's a nice bloke. I know him a bit. And he's smarter than most of the others. He's an economist. He's been working incredibly hard. Quite a lot of those behind the scenes are from the Vote Leave campaign in 2016 and see everything in terms of sloganizing and campaigns and messaging. Uh, he, he's, he's, he's better than that and smarter than that and has worked no doubt around the clock. He looks exhausted. But he's also got a very self-conscious presence when he projects himself. His his videos during the leadership contests and indeed in the December general election were beyond parody. They made Ricky Gervais seem absolutely normal compared with the uh, Hancock versions. And he did this on Friday as well when he announced the tests. It felt sort of like an Oscar celebration speech. I thought at one point he was going to say I'd like to thank my family, my wife especially, who supported me all the way through this, the director, the rest of the cast, as he announced this figure. The figure, of course, was massaged. I think the number of tests actually done on the key date was uh, 73,000, but they sent out a load of kits and counted that, so the number well exceeded 100,000. It's very interesting. The government faces many nightmarish challenges in the weeks and months ahead, years ahead, actually. But they have a media 
where the bar is set much lower than under a Labour government. If New Labour had done that with the figures, that would have been the story. The media under New Labour were obsessed with spin, thinking they were being very clever at dissecting announcements and so on. And sometimes they were, sometimes the announcements were spin, but it got way, way out of hand. So everything was spin. And I've got absolutely no doubt at all that newspapers and the BBC, heavily influenced by newspapers, would have created a furore over the spinning of that 100,000-a-day tests target. It would have all been about spin. They would have been calling for Alistair Campbell's resignation. They would have been demanding an apology from Blair. And it would have gone on for days. And each bit, you know, a newspaper would have led on the spin. The Today programme would have followed it up and on it would have gone. Instead, most reported the target as having been met and a great triumph. And none of them really focused at all on the spin that uh, got them to that Oscar-winning target. But there's another twist, and this is more important. We know what the media is like. They're currently portraying Boris Johnson as this heroic figure because he caught the virus, which was, of course, terrifying for him and upsetting but it wasn't a heroic act to catch the illness Uh, but he is being elevated they did the same with Margaret Thatcher during the Falklands and it went to Thatcher's head the portrayal of her as the war leader and she started referring to Winston Churchill as Winston as if she was the natural heir and Winston, as she called him, was uh, someone with whom she had been close. She hardly knew Winston Churchill. They they had no rapport on first name terms, but Winston, Winston was cited. And that was partly with the newspapers portraying her as this great warrior, returning Britain to greatness. And by catching the illness, they're doing the same with Boris Johnson. All of that is significant because when the media sets the bar lower, the government knows it can get away with a certain amount more and it can become complacent as a result. New Labour became too neurotic about the media and that paralysed it at times in government. It was a great myth that the New Labour era was one of arrogance. It was one of neurosis, largely actually about the media. Well, this lot, no, they can get away with all kinds of things and the media will hail it as the return of Britain, the best that Britain has done since 1945 and all the rest of it. And that lower bar, in the end, can lead to quite complacent government, as we saw at the beginning of this crisis. But Matt Hancock has shown something very, very significant. Target setting is a brilliant form of accountability. It's simple. It galvanises a fragmented set of services in the United Kingdom, and they all feel the need to prove that they can get near to that target. And it is transformative. And although they didn't get to the 100,000 and shouldn't have fiddled the figures, it was an epic achievement to increase testing capacity on the scale that took place. And the reason it happened so quickly was that target. Matt Hancock himself knew he was accountable and would have been in a difficult position if the figure had been, say, below 50,000 or even 60,000 when he had said 100,000. 
And all those responsible for getting hold of the kits knew they too would never live it down if they failed by a huge margin to reach the target. And it is the most accessible form of accountability. If a government sets a target, it lives or dies via this target. And it worked extremely well, actually, under that last Labour government. The last Labour government was a great fan of targets. They recognised that public services were bureaucratic and difficult to be held to account. And targeting was one of their ways of doing it. Waiting lists, there was a target, if you remember, in relation to waiting lists, there was a target as to when someone could see their GP. There was a target about meeting certain operations within a certain time. And those targets, on the whole, were met. And if they weren't met, all hell would break loose and there would be a post-mortem and an examination and improvements to take place in order that those targets were met. Now what happened, and it is typical of the sort of UK culture, where certainly Cameron and that lot, we'll come on to that in a minute, were very suspicious of targeting. Oh, the state mustn't do this. You know, look, it absolutely distorts everything. If you put a target in, other things suffer and all the rest of it. All of that might be the case. And yet it works. When you have, as we do, an NHS, which through a series of ill-conceived reforms, I've talked about this before, means that there are overlapping layers of responsibility. Everyone is accountable, so no one is accountable. When you have that kind of system, to have a clear target galvanizes the whole thing to deliver from the health secretary and indeed prime minister downwards and it worked with the testing capacity and what happened after 2010 was that coalition came in and targets went out of fashion targets were a distortion targets were this targets were that and they went along with the NHS reforms which further fragmented the NHS and lines of accountability became wholly blurred and delivery less effective. Look at waiting list times before even this virus hit. And one of the interesting things about this virus is that it has exposed the degree to which command and control matter. The lines of control, who commands what? Is it the health secretary? Is it NHS England? Is it the NHS trusts? Is it absolutely matters? It was very interesting when they expanded the um, hospital capacity by building hospitals very quickly and they got the army in amongst others. It was another great achievement. But the command and control is straightforward when you get the army in. You just tell them to come, they salute and off they go and build things. It's harder with the fragmented public services in other fields, which is one of the reasons why they were struggling to get hold of the testing kit and they struggled with PPE. There were other factors as well about leaving it so late on. The UK has been behind the curve in so much of this. So well done, Matt Hancock, for bringing back 
targets as a form of accountability. He did it for the wrong reasons. It was a panic reaction to their more supportive newspapers, the Telegraph and the Mail, running headlines about the lack of tests. And in that panic response, he said, we'll do 100,000. And he got his Oscar-winning moment uh, in his press conference during the week, spoilt only by the desire to distort what had happened. And it was already an epic achievement. This crisis is raising so many different issues about Britain that was and what Britain needs to be in the future. I think it will be a transformative moment. Many people think it won't be, that the crisis will pass and then things will return to what they were before. And in some respects, of course, they will. People will want to travel. People want to go to the pub. People want to go to restaurants. And no doubt, tubes will be packed and trains will be packed unless we start improving transport provision in this country, something we have struggled to do. And all of that could well return. But I think the fragmented public services, care homes, for example, being wholly dependent on the NHS and yet entirely separate from it, endless private providers of those homes, so it's very hard to coordinate a policy that applies to all of them, that will change. So, I think, will the organisation of the NHS already People were reacting against the Lansley reforms introduced by that coalition government of historic ineptitude. And that will have to develop further. Who is in control? And so will the level of resources. There are many reasons why some other countries have responded to this more effectively. But one of them is the resources they put into their health systems. Their structures are often less efficient than having a wholly national service that the UK has in spite of the fragmentation and differences in Scotland, Wales and so on. But Germany spends more. The reason why Sweden's laissez-faire approach has to some extent worked, although not wholly, is that they already have a better resourced health service. So that will happen, and that too raises all kinds of issues about the kind of economic policies that will follow this uh, nightmare as and when it comes to some form of an ending. There is no way that 2010-style austerity will be, or could be, the response of this latest Conservative government to the scale of borrowing that has taken place in recent months and will, by the way, have to continue for some time to come. The economy is not going to be getting back to a sort of 100% level for a long, long time. You can't imagine Boris Johnson, he's already said he's not going to use the word or apply the policy. They cannot announce cuts to the NHS after this. The opposite there will have to be constant increases in resources to get it up to the sort of level that Germany and other countries now have. And where do they get the money from, given that the scale of borrowing that is taking place at the moment? These are going to be huge questions for this government. 
It's a curious government because it's a government in its fourth term and yet is actually new and inexperienced because even though it's the fourth term, uh, Johnson and Cummings purged the parliamentary party of many of the more experienced cabinet-serving ministers in the Brexit round. So it's new. It wanted to do things differently prior to this pandemic changing everything. Leveling up was one of the revealing phrases. And by the way, it is an extremely revealing phrase, that phrase, leveling up, because it doesn't imply redistribution as a way of getting poorer areas to become more affluent. It implies by leveling up, you are going to intervene to propel poorer areas upwards without any forms of redistribution. It's a very different phrase to redistribution. You are going to invest as a government in poor areas to push them up. And where this money is going to come from now in this transformed context is far from clear. I think before the pandemic, they were planning to borrow. We know that from Sunak's budget, which was delivered on the edge of the pandemic before this government grasped its seriousness. And he was already putting the case for borrowing in a very Keynesian way, which was so interesting. He said that by borrowing, it would improve economic growth and improve productivity, which would lead to a boost to the economy. Very Keynesian argument. Well, then he was borrowing quite a lot to pay for their so-called levelling up programme. Now he's borrowing in a different stratosphere to cope with the consequences of this nightmare. And how they then find money subsequently to do those other things, I don't know the answer to that. It's not at all clear how they start addressing the scale of borrowing. They won't want uh, tax increases on the level required. And yet I think spending cuts go out of the window when there has been this focus and celebration of public services in the light of this pandemic. One of the factors that will determine the degree to which Britain's economy can recover, one of many, is the outcome of the Brexit trade talks. And this is a reminder of where this government is anchored. It is so interesting that and worrying that even after the pandemic, which is sucking up all political energy and attention, not just in Britain, but across Europe, that this government does not consider extending the trade talks beyond the end of December. And the arguments coming out are so disturbing and fascinating. Ian Martin is a great Times columnist and um, it was a Brexiteer, but what he calls a, a, a moderate Brexiteer. And, but he now is in favour of scrapping the trade talks. And the essence of the argument, and he'll have spoken to people in government, is that because of the scale of the disruption arising from the pandemic, let's get this other one done as well, the ending of the trade talks with no deal. And the country will hardly notice because it's already in the midst of seismic turmoil which is 
when you think about it, an extraordinary argument. Oh, let's give them a kicking, but they won't notice because they're getting such a kicking anyway. But such is the ideological commitment to Brexit based on this view of British exceptionalism that dominates this government. The idea that Britain somehow will rise above all the apparent challenges of leaving its biggest market without any kind of deal for the future, because it is Britain. It was this exceptionalism that determined their early strategy about the virus, that somehow or other, because of this country, we, we, we won the war in 1945, therefore the virus will hardly touch us. And that was the sort of driving force early on when the WHO did that famous, the, the leading guy there said, the answer to this is test, test, test. British response, no, that doesn't apply to us. No need to do that here. And it is the same with Brexit. Has been since the, and during the 2016 referendum, that this country uniquely can defy evidence, can defy all normal assumptions about trade negotiations and the length of time they take because it is this country. It is delusional and dangerous and will be a factor in determining the UK recovery from this nightmare in terms of economic policy. And given the ambition of this government and its admirable ambition to invest more, to use the levers of the state more willingly than the um, turbocharged Thatcherism of the Cameron era. They need the economy to be in absolute top form to be able to do any of this. And yet they are going to impair the economy severely, it seems, by pulling out of the Brexit talks in December. There is one assumption that this is all machismo, because they have deceived themselves that their apparent machismo in the build-up to the withdrawal agreement got the EU to kind of change its mind and turn on itself because they were so overwhelmed by Johnson saying, uh, we're going to leave, come up, mate. October the 30th, come up, mate. Now, actually, he wasn't in that position because Parliament had rendered that illegal in the event of a no-deal. So the European Union had nothing to worry about. They conceded that withdrawal agreement because Johnson basically offered the proposition that they had made in the first place about treating Northern Ireland as an entirely separate entity. And in doing so, had, of course, famously betrayed the DUP. He had pledged he would never do that. So they said, oh, yeah, we'll take that. Of course, that's why they responded speedily, not because of UK machismo, but I think they bought into that the Brexiteers in number 10 and assume that they're going to get a deal out of a fearful EU in the end because they are threatening to walk away. They won't. And therefore, the chances of the UK walking away without anything, they call it the Australian deal, but Australia hasn't got a deal. And Australia is a wholly different economy from the United Kingdom. The, the, the dangers of that happening are very high. And if it does, this disease is about people. It transmits via people. But if you go to a supermarket in queue, you can still get food and the prices haven't gone up that much. Without a deal, some food will disappear. 
and prices will go up, food prices and others. And some sectors will become very vulnerable, more so than they already are. So this government with these epic ambitions is going to impair, impede itself because of its obsession with Brexit and British exceptionalism. These are strange and weird times. Anyway, as I say, uh, there will be another live show from a room in my house in May. We're going to get details or a route map of the government's exit strategy. Rightly, the tone is cautious. Let's hope the practical measures are cautious because the death rate in the UK is still very high and the rate of infection is quite hard to monitor. Uh, so if they are serious about avoiding a second peak, uh, which I'm sure they are, they need to be very careful about how they exit from this lockdown. And this is going to be an act of great subtlety, balancing, delicacy and absolute forensic planning. None of which happened in that crucial period in February and early March. It might do now because there is at least a recognition that the severity of the thing. No one will wish this illness on anyone, but the fact that Johnson and Cummings both know how serious it is because they both had it does provide a more reassuring context that they are aware of the need to diminish its impact with every measure that they take in terms of the exit strategy. So we shall see. But this is a slow-moving drama, as I said at the beginning, where actually you can put out a show or a podcast and it doesn't date very much. Uh, it's not like the Brexit drama where every hour something seemed to change, making it quite difficult to do podcasts which remained re relevant for more than about a minute. This is different. We're in this for the long haul. Anyway, look, thank you so much for listening today. I'll be back again with the podcast next week, where I suspect lockdown, exit strategy, deaths, tests, equipment will continue to be the running theme. But within that, there are always areas to explore, themes to investigate. So I'll do a bit of exploration, a bit of investigation next week in the safety of a podcast room in my house. Thanks for listening. See you next time.